a Christian businessman from the States, attended the graduation service of the Toronto Baptist Seminary and Bible College on Friday night last. Four years earlier, a member of his congregation in the southern states had revealed his intention to enroll in seminary to train for the pastoral ministry. And so Chris made a promise to him that if he completed the course of study over four years, that he would be present to celebrate with him at graduation. Four years later, as this young man came to graduation, the promise made became the promise kept, because Chris was true to his word and attended, made time in his busy schedule. Fidelity to one's commitment appears to be something of a rarity today. We are not in the mood as a society to keep our word. You see the devastating consequences of broken promises, unfaithfulness to commitment, particularly in the area of marriage, and the alarming rate of divorce. We have concluded as a society that unwavering commitment to a person, to a promise, to a cause, or even a legitimate position formally held is not in our best interest. We want the freedom to be able to break our word, to break our commitment. The call of God, however, to the Christian is fundamentally a call to wholehearted commitment. Anthony Lane, who writes a commentary on the book of Hebrews, entitles his popular work on Hebrews, A Call to Commitment, because that is essentially what Christianity is. It is a call to commitment. And the passage upon which we will focus, here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, epitomizes the call of Hebrews, a call to commitment. You may recall that the writer commences this epistle to a group of believers who were in Rome. And he reminds them that Jesus is the distinctive revelation of God. Because God had spoken in the past, but now he has spoken in these days, and he has spoken in Jesus Christ, he has spoken in the Son. He then embarks on a series of understatements for emphasis, declaring that Jesus is better than angels, that he's better than Moses, and that he's even better than Joshua who gave rest to Israel. That is the point that has been made in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And then we come to verses 14 and 16, of Hebrews chapter 4, seeing we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This section, verses 14 to 16, functions as a janus. In other words, it has two faces. It faces two directions at the same time. In one, on one hand, it looks backwards to the section that has now just been completed, in which the writer tells them that the word of God is powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide and to expose the inward parts of man, one's spiritual condition. But he will not leave them in a state of perplexity or fear. He reminds them that they have a high priest, seeing that we have a great high priest. And so this passage then is essential because it wants to comfort those who have heard of God as the one who searches and judges his people. But these verses, that is verses 14 to 16, they also look forward to the next section, a block of material that runs from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18. And there, the central message of Hebrews, that is, the high priesthood of Jesus, is developed. Before he comes to the subject of the high priesthood properly, he introduces it here in verse 14. Seeing that we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. In this section, verses 14 to 16, there are two major exhortations. The first is to hold fast to their confession in verse 14. And the second, in verse 16, to come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, normally, when Christians come to this text, verse 16 is the favorite. It's the, it's the text that we go to immediately. But I'm going to, by God's grace, delay this for this, this day and come back to it in the future. What I want to do is to look at the first of these two exhortations, the exhortation to hold fast to our confession. I want us to look, I want to begin first with the exhortation proper. That is, to hold fast to their confession. Before we even open this up, let me point out to you one structural feature that I think is important in the text and in the following text. You will find that this passage, verses 14 to 16, resembles very closely another passage in Hebrews, that is in chapter 10, verses 21 to 23. Here he says in chapter 14, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession. In verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. But when you go to verse chapter 10, 21 to 23, you will see that he reverses the order of, first of all, holding fast and approaching or coming near, he says, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So he reverses the order. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who was promised is faithful. In our text, in chapter 4, verse 16, and verses 14 to 16, he tells them, first of all, that they are to hold fast. And then he says that they are to draw near. 
But in chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, he reverses the order. They are to draw near and they are to hold fast. But that is only a stylistic difference. And what it tells you is that this command to hold fast and the command to draw near borders this section. And that shows you that essentially this is a call, an exhortation for them to hold fast to the things that are important. And so that is in terms of an introduction. There are two main ideas, as I said. First of all, it is to hold fast to the confession and to draw near. But in this first exhortation, let us hold fast our confession, there are two important words. The first word is the term translated hold fast. And this word comes from a Hebrew root, kratio. Kratio, which is translated to hold fast. Kratio, as a verb, occurs several times in the New Testament. And it's derived from the root kratos. Now, kratos has as its basic meaning power. And you, know, you can see that, for instance, when you look at the compound word pantocratos in the book of Revelation, where it, recur, where it occurs on several occasions to refer to Jesus Christ. He is the pantocrator. Pantocrator is made up of two words. Panta, which is all, and kratos, which is powerful. And it means that Jesus then is all-powerful. And so the root of kratio is kratos, which has essentially the meaning of power. But here and elsewhere in the New Testament, kratio means to grasp, to seize, to take possession of something. And bearing in mind the root of power, it would then mean that they are to grasp powerfully or grasp firmly their confession, to hold firmly, powerfully to their confession. That's the first word, katia, to grasp, to hold, to seize with strength and with power their confession. The second word then in this exhortation in verse 14 is confession. There the Greek word is homologia. We find this in the first epistle of John in the first chapter where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. There, homologia, the natural, the literal meaning is to agree, to say the same thing. You see, when we confess our sins to God, we are saying the same things to God. We are saying to God, you have judged me and found me to be a deviant, a spiritual deviant, that I have broken your word, that I have, that I have indeed disobeyed your will, and I agree. I am in agreement. I am a sinner. So, homologia, confession, means first and foremost to agree. But it can also mean promise. However, in this particular case, let us hold fast to our confession. The confession that he refers to is that solemn public commitment, that solemn religious commitment that they made when they became Christians. So when he says, therefore, 
Let us hold fast our confession. He's referring to their commitment that they made first as Christians. They had to hold fast to this. It, of course, must involve holding fast to a body of teaching. Teaching about the nature of God. God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune in His being. It must indeed holding fast to the gospel and the teachings of salvation which is found in Jesus Christ alone and which requires a life of godliness. But when he says to them that they are to hold fast, to seize and to grasp firmly their confession, their commitment, to remain faithful to their commitment or their confession, he is demanding more than adherence to a set of biblical doctrines, but rather he's calling them to hold firmly to their confession, and their confession must be seen first and foremost as Christ. What I'm saying to you, that the confession that they are to hold firmly to is not a set of doctrinal teachings, though these are important, but it is to not just theological propositions, but to a a person, the Lord Jesus. You know that is true because in chapter 3, verse 1, you see how the writer links their confession and Jesus. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, the writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, the one who has been sent, because the word apostle means sent. Consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession. In other words, they are, to, they are to consider the apostle Jesus Christ and the high priest Christ, the one whom they have confessed, the one to whom they have given their commitment and their loyalty. And so when he says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, let us grasp with strength and power our confession. He's saying, you must hold on firmly to your confession, and your confession or your commitment is a commitment to Jesus Christ. They must do so because they were under threat. They were wavering. They were think of, thinking of reversing their commitment, their earlier confession of Jesus Christ. They had received the gospel with great joy. They had made progress in the faith. But now they were experiencing in Rome pressure that arose not only from the religious establishment, that is even from among the Jews in Rome, they were receiving pressure, it appears, even from the political forces. And so they were being squeezed, it seems, on all sides. They had the general populace against them because they thought that Christians were atheists, they didn't have many gods. You had the Jews who believed that they had perverted the Old Testament and the law of God. And then you had the political establishment who resented the Christians because they would not bow to Caesar. And they thought that they were anarchists and they were rebellious. So they were being squeezed on all sides. And they had begun to question whether it was worth it all to continue their dedication to Christ. And so the writer says... Let us hold fast our confession. Let's hold fast our commitment. In other words, let us stick with Jesus. So you see them the exhortation to grasp firmly, to seize 
and to retain their commitment or their confession of Jesus Christ. But having exhorted them to continue faithfully in their commitment or their confession of Christ, he gives them then now two great incentives for obedience. Why must they continue in their commitment to Christ? There are two incentives that are found. The first is found in verse 14, part A of verse 14, and the second is found in verse 15. Here is the first incentive. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Here is the first great incentive for holding fast to their confession. If I may summarize this, he tells them first of all that they must continue and persevere in a life of faithfulness to their confession, the one whom they have confessed Christ. And the reason they are to do so, here it is, it is because of the greatness of Jesus Christ, their high priest. Seeing that we have a great high priest, he presents them first then with the greatness of Jesus Christ. And he calls him a great high priest. The Apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ in a number of contexts. But even he does not refer to Christ as high priest. Only the writer of Hebrews referred to Jesus Christ explicitly as a great high priest. And he does so. He alludes to this in chapter 1 when he says that he had purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He refers to him as a high priest in chapter 2 verse 14 or 2 verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. In the passage that I read earlier in chapter 3 verse 1 he says we must consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. And now he refers to Jesus Christ as our high priest. But he does something else. He says seeing that we have a great high priest. Well, many commentators have looked at this and said this is tautological. This is superfluous to call him a great high priest because the high priest was the greatest priest. He was the chief of all the priests. You never had a priest greater than the high priest. There was nowhere else to go. He was at the top of the chain of priests. So high priest refers to the greatest priest. But now... The writer says, seeing that we have a great high priest, the greatest of great priests. He is a priest above all priests. And this language of priesthood is important in the book of Hebrews. It is at the center of the book of Hebrews. In fact, we know that the priest in Israel stood second only to the king in dignity and in rank. He was one of the most important men in all of Israel. The priest functioned essentially as a mediator. You see, sin separates us from God. And it was the task of the mediator to effect reconciliation, to bring God's people back to God. And he had four 
particular tasks as a high priest, as a mediator. First, he had the task of representation. He was there not on his own behalf, but as a representative of the people of God. And that is why in the Old Testament, the priest would, work, would wear the ephod, this, this little thing, this little bib over his, over his robe. On, on it, he would have the 12 stones with each of the tribe of Israel written, so that whenever he performed his task in the, in the most holy place, he would have the children of Israel on his heart. He was representing them. The second task of the priest, or the high priest, was that of satisfaction. It was the most important task because he had to offer sacrifices, gifts and offerings to God to propitiate sin. He had to shed blood. And there was no way that God would forgive sins without the shedding of blood. And so the task of the priest was to offer a victim in the place of those who had sinned. The third task of the priest was that of intercession. It was his duty to pray that God would have mercy upon his people. And the last task was that of blessing. And you know the great Aaronic blessing in Numbers 6, 22 to 27, the Lord said to Aaron, this is how you should pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and so on. Our Lord Jesus Christ performed all of these as high priest. And he's the one who finally blesses his people with salvation. So Jesus is introduced here as great, as a great high priest. He's the greatest of all the priests, the one who represents the people of God, the one who acts on their behalf and propitiates God with his own blood. But not only does he tell us that we have a great high priest, therefore we are to continue to grasp our confession and our commitment, he explains the greatness of Christ as a high priest. And he does so in terms of pointing out his transcendence, you see, he says, we have, seeing that we have a great high priest. And how is this priest great? Since we have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens? That's a description, an explanation of the greatness of this priest. He has gone through the heavens. And by this he means that Jesus Christ arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He has gone, he has passed through the atmosphere. He has passed through this physical creation into the heavenly sanctuary. Now this is a, a tremendous statement to make. Because we understand that the Old Testament priests, those in the New Testament, they operated in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were permitted once a year to go into the inner sanctum, into the holiest of holies. They were able to go in only once a year and only with blood. But Jesus has not gone into an earthly sanctuary or tabernacle or temple. He has gone into the heavenly tabernacle. And what this means is that he is a greater high priest than all high priests because he has immediate access to the presence of God. In fact, in chapter 9, that's the point that is made. It is not simply that Jesus Christ has traveled through the heavens, but it is where he's now stationed that is important. And so in chapter 9, 24, the writer says, for Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. He has not entered into an earthly tabernacle, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself. And then he puts this, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
Christ is therefore a great high priest because he now carries on his priestly work in heaven itself, in the very presence of God. He has direct access to God. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. God is present everywhere, but his glory, majesty, and power and sovereignty are most clearly demonstrated in heaven, and Jesus Christ has gone through the heavens. Secondly, he describes the greatness of Jesus Christ, not only in terms of his transcendence, that he has passed through the heavens into the heavenly sanctuary, but he also shows that his, that his greatness rests in his unique identity. It is not just where Christ is that makes him great, but who he is. And that is why the writer says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and then comes uh, the description of the person of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son. You see, it is Jesus who is the Son. It is precisely because he is the eternal Son of God that makes him great. He is the Son, the one who is the revelation of God, the one who made the world, the one who upholds the world. We are told in the first paragraph of Hebrews, the one who is of the exact representation of the Father, the one who, having satisfied for our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who has received a name that is greater than the name of angels. The one of whom the Lord said, this is my son. Today I have begotten him. You see, it is this Christ, because he is the eternal, unchanging son of God. And it is this one who is our priest. He can say, seeing that we have a great high priest. He's exalted in heaven. And so he's great. And he's a son of God. And so he is great. He's great because of his station, his transcendence, and because of his unique identity as a son of God. So the first reason, the first basis, the first incentive then for holding fast, holding firmly to their confession or, or commitment is because of the greatness of Jesus Christ, I've just, just now explained. But the second incentive for them to hold fast is because of the tenderness of Jesus, not only because of his greatness, but because of his tenderness as high priest. And that's the point that is being made in verse 15, an important point. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, the fact that Jesus is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and he's a son of God might have led some to begin to think that he's so great, therefore he's remote. He can't understand what we suffer. He can't ever care for us. He's too far above us. So the writer moves quickly to say to them that even though Jesus Christ is a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens and he's a son of God, he's still, nevertheless, the human Jesus. And he's the one, he will tell us, who, he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In verse 15, in fact, he uses two negatives. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. Two negatives. 
And that is again a literary device, a litotes, which is using the negative to say the positive. So when he says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, what he means positive is we do have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And the reason is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. It is because he was at all points tempted as we are. He endured temptation. He lived a full human life here on earth. He was tested by Satan, tempted by Satan, to grasp power and fame, to live a self-centered life, to abandon the mission of the cross. And throughout his entire ministry, Satan dogged him, seeking to divert him from the purpose and the will of the Father. And that is why he had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ knew suffering, and he knew temptation. He knew temptation when it reached its crescendo in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Lord, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. He's being tested. Will he stick to the course? Will he carry on and do the Father's will? Or will he abandon God's way? And there, under the shadow of the cross, we find Jesus in one of the greatest testings of his life. And yet he triumphed. Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, the writer says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Yes, we do have a high priest who can sympathize because he has been tested at all points as we are. And the reason that he's able to sympathize, it is because he knows temptation. Not that temptation comes from within him, but he is being tested to change course and to break with the will of God. But you see, this, this high priest is not only able to feel the things that we suffer, he's able to help us. Chapter 217 made that clear. Or in verse 18 it says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able not only to sympathize, but he's able to help those who are tempted. Jesus Christ, though he is high in, in glory, though he is passed through the heavens, though he's a son of God, still remembers his suffering on earth still remembers because he's human. And because he endured temptation to the end, he did not fail. He's in the best position to help us in our weaknesses. You see, we, we, we cannot be helped by, by a savior if he failed to keep God's will, if he failed to overcome temptation. You don't need somebody who succumbed to temptation to tell you how to overcome temptation. What you need is somebody who has overcome temptation to tell you how to do it. And Jesus Christ, because he endured temptation without sinning, is able not only to sympathize, but also to help. And so, taken together, what we find in these two verses, we find the exhortation to hold firmly to our confession, to our commitment. And secondly, we've been given these two incentives based on the greatness of Jesus Christ and based on the tenderness of Christ who understands us in our sufferings, 
we are being reminded and given a strong reminder that in Christ we have all our sufficiency. Our sufficiency is in Christ in whom we believe. What do we make of this text that calls us and calls all generations of Christians to commitment, to hold fast our confession, the Christ whom we have confessed? I want to suggest three things here this afternoon. First and foremost, if you and I are to be Christians, we must be willing to confess Christ. We belong in the stream of history, a stream that is a stream of sin. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And though alive, we are dying. We may not know it yet, especially if you are in your teens or in your early 20s, but you are dying. You look at old people and you look at those who are over 50 and so on, like myself, you think these guys are old. We are closer to death, and that may be true. But all of us, we are all dying. We lose strength and power. Our eyes grow dim. Our steps slacken. And after death, after that death, like a rolling stream, bears all her children, her sons and daughters away, we die. That's the path of man. That's your road, and that's my road. And there is no escape from this path unless Jesus Christ returns early. But before we go to the grave, we have an important task in this world that is to confess Christ. You see, you can't hold fast to a confession unless you first confess Christ. And the scriptures tell us that confessing Christ is of vital importance. For Paul, in writing to the Romans, in Romans chapter 10 and verses 8 and 9, he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that man believes unto righteousness, and it is with the mouth that confession is made unto salvation. All of us are called upon to declare our commitment to Christ, to confess Christ. And a confession of Jesus Christ begins with believing in Christ. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you must, if you are to be saved, believe in a Christ who died for sins, who paid the entire wages for our sin bill. You must believe in Christ who gave his blood for our sins. But to be saved, you must also believe in a risen Christ. You see, a dead Christ can never save. So you need to believe in Christ who died and rose again from the dead. Our Savior is a living Savior. But it is important not only just to believe. You see, the Scriptures are not just concerned with having convictions in the heart. Those convictions must be expressed. So that for one to be truly saved, one must not only believe with the heart, but one must confess with the mouth Christ. 
one must confess that he is Lord. Paul says no man can say Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. In other words, no one can truly say and really believe in saying Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so to be saved, you must believe in Christ. You must turn from your sin. You must turn to Christ. You must rest upon his death and resurrection. But you must tell somebody that I believe in Christ, that I, I have him as my Lord. Reading Songs of Solomon, the Shumanite woman says, I am my beloved and he's mine. Anyone who's genuinely saved must say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I own him. I love him. I trust him. My whole future, my eternal destination lies in Jesus Christ. You must confess him. And I want to ask you, do you believe in Jesus? And then secondly, have you told somebody about that faith? Have you said it to somebody that I do believe in Jesus? Because you need both if you're to be saved. It's important because the Bible demands it. To refuse to confess Christ is to deny him. And listen to what Jesus says about those who confess or refuse to confess him. He says in Luke 12, 8 and 9, And I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. If we deny him, he will deny us. So we must confess him. We must never be ashamed to declare our faith in our Savior. If you are to be saved, you must not only believe, but speak with your mouth, Christ is mine and I am his. You must also know that a refusal to confess him now will eventually bring you to your knees. Whether you confess him here or now, now or later, it is your choice, but confess you will. You will do so joyfully or you will do so under derision, under, under duress, by force. So Paul, tell it, talking to the Philippians, he says, Therefore God has highly, also highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We live in a world of atheists. We believe. We who are Christians, Jesus Christ is God. But we live in a world where atheists deny the existence of God. And they may do so for a while. But scripture teaches that one day all men will recognize, will recognize Christ as Lord. And will bow to him. And will confess he's Lord. And I'm saying to you that the path of wisdom is to joyfully and willingly confess him now before you are forced to do so on that great day when you stand before him. To hold fast to our confession, we must begin initially by confessing Christ for salvation. But we must also, secondly, continue in our confession of Christ, in our commitment to Christ. And why is it important? Because we, like Israel, are a pilgrim people. And there are threats to faith. 
You know, these are threats we must know. We must know our threats. We must know the environment in which we live and operate. Just reading over the weekend of a, a young salesman who started out in sales and he goes to this company and he asks reception, I want to talk to the sales manager. And so reception takes him in and he goes to the sales manager and he turns to the sales manager and he said, you don't want to buy insurance, do you? And the sales manager looked at him and said, no, I don't want to buy insurance. And the young salesman got up and he says, well, I didn't think you wanted to buy insurance anyway. And the sales manager looked at him perplexed and said, young man, sit down. He said, I've been doing this job in sales for over 30 years. I've trained hundreds of salesmen. But I want to assure you, you are the worst I've ever, ever seen. He looked at him for a while, this little young man cringing on the chair before him. He said, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to buy $20,000 worth of insurance from you. And he signed on the dotted line, the papers. Before the young man left, he said, you know what, son? You, you've got to develop a sales pitch because you have none. You'll never be able to sell insurance with what the sales pitch you have. And the young man turned to him and he said, but sir, I do have a sales pitch. This is my sales pitch for sales managers. <laughs> you see, the young man knew the environment. He knew he couldn't go into the manager with pride and confidence. So he went in timidly because he knew that he would have compassion and pity on him. You have to know your environment, the obstacles that you face. And whereas this young man knew his obstacles, knew his environment, we who are Christians need to know our environment and the obstacles that we face. C.B. Cranfield, one of the great New Testament commentators who wrote a, a magnificent work on the, on the book of Romans, says that there are five tests or challenges to our faith. He says the first challenge is the challenge of laziness, whereby we are unwilling to pray. We are unwilling to do the things that we need to do. Reading the scriptures, pursuing the means of grace. These things will challenge our faith. And if we refuse to do them, we will depart from the faith. He says, secondly, the second challenge to our faith comes from suffering, illness, physical disabilities, unemployment. He says, the troubles of life can either draw you to Christ or they can push you away from him. Very often when we have troubles in life and we have needs, we can become angry. When people have done us wrong, we can become angry and bitter. You see, but the, the mature Christian is one who looks behind the particular circumstance and see that there is a sovereign God whose will is being worked out. And so the, the question we ask in difficult times, what does God want of me? What does he want to teach me? These become stepping stones to draw us closer to God, not farther away from him or further away from him. But Cranfield says that there is also a third pressure to our faith which comes from the pull of the surrounding culture where we're being attracted to live like the world. He says there's a fourth challenge. And that challenge comes from the unexplained tragedies and horrors that we see in life, where there is, it seems that 
propensity to question the goodness of God because we can't understand the mysteries of God. And he says, fifthly, there's a challenge that comes to our faith when we see other Christians sinning egregiously. But there are a host of challenges to our faith. And you and I need to know them. And we need to continue to resist these challenges. We need to persist in our confession to Jesus Christ. We need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us this. He who overcomes, he says, shall be clothed in white garment. And I will not block out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels in Revelation 3 verse 8. You need to know that despite the challenges to our faith, that we have been given more than adequate resources by which to persevere. We have been, we have been given the greatest resources. We have not been left to our own devices. We have been given a great high priest. A great high priest, priest who is positioned in the right place. He's in the greatest place. He's in the place of all power and authority. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. You have a great priest who is ruling in heaven in a great place. And not only do you have a high priest who's in the greatest of places, but you have a high priest who is the greatest of persons. He is the all-conquering, sovereign majesty, the ruler who reigns over creation. That is the one that you have in your corner is God himself. How then, how then could we ever think of departing from him? And the one you have in your corner is the tenderness, is the one who has all the tenderness that you need, the sympathy that you need, and the ability to help you in your need. We are to persevere then in our confession, in our commitment to Christ, because we have in Christ all that we need. Our sufficiency is found in him. And he's of his greatness then means he's worthy of trust. And his tenderness means he's worthy of our trust. But let me say that to, to persevere in our confession, in our commitment to Christ, requires practical steps. Practical steps. I want to list three and conclude. First of all, it requires public identification with Christ, the Son. If we are to persevere in our commitment, in our confession to Christ, of Christ, we must publicly identify with him. He tasted death on our behalf. And as the pioneer of our salvation, as the captain of our salvation, who was not ashamed to call us brothers, we are not to be ashamed to identify him as our savior. Christ was not ashamed to identify with us by, by becoming man. We must not be ashamed to identify with him. It means that in our workplaces, in our families and in society, we need to use wisdom. But at some point in time, the people who work with you for any length of time, they must begin to know that there is something different. And they must know that you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you belong to his family. If we are to persevere in our confession, in our commitment to Christ, there needs to be public identification with Christ, the Son. But there must be communal adoration of Christ if we are to persevere in our commitment to him. I find it rather interesting that as the writer draws to a conclusion in chapter 13 of this epistle, he has these words 
to them. He says in chapter 13, verse 15, Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise, or the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in his name. He says we are to continually offer to God praise, and he called praise a sacrifice. He calls it the fruit of our lips. So we have to be giving verbal praise to God. And then he says, giving thanks in his name. Giving thanks in his name. But the term that he uses here, giving thanks, is the term that we met earlier. It is a term that we saw earlier, which means to confess. Homologio is the verb. Homologio, to confess. So literally what he says is that we are to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, confessing his name, praising his name. So how do we, how do we hold to our confession of Jesus Christ? We confess his name publicly, telling men that we belong to him, but we confess his name communally, among the people of God by praising him. If you're holding on to your faith in Christ and your confession of Christ, you ought to praise him. You ought to confess him in worship. And thirdly, if you are to hold on to this confession, this commitment you have made to him, there must be personal devotion, not only public identification and communal adoration, but there must be personal devotion. You must continually offer yourself in obedience to the will of the Lord. You must know this, that to hold fast to your confession is not static. It is dynamic so that we are growing more and more in conformity to Christ because we are holding fast, but we are going deeper in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Our confession then, our commitment to Christ must not just be verbal, it must also be in word and deed. And may God grant us that we would hold fast to our confession and grant us the grace that we might be more and more obedient to his will. For Jesus' sake, amen.